Hello, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America, featuring today's top directors sharing behind-the-scenes stories of their latest films and insights into the craft of directing. Please take a second to subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. This episode, we're bringing you an exclusive conversation from the grand reopening of the DGA's Los Angeles Theater. Conceived and designed by DGA directors and the world's leading theater architects, the new theater utilizes Dolby Vision Picture and Dolby Atmos Sound to vividly showcase the contours of every visual element, sound, and nuance conceptualized by directors in the creation of their art, providing the ultimate theatrical experience for DGA members and industry audiences. As part of the reopening celebrations, directors John Favreau, Michael Mann, and Betty Thomas each personally selected a film for the theater's inaugural screenings. The screening of Mr. Favreau's selection, Ridley Scott's final cut of his 1982 sci-fi drama Blade Runner, was followed by a discussion between the two directors about the making of this now-classic film. Wow, congratulations on this theater. That sound is fantastic. Wasn't that wonderful? What a, what mix. a great Ooh. picture, too. Jeez, that would have been embarrassing after that big introduction if it didn't look good. Harrison's pretty good, isn't he? Oh, yeah. And I think, I he, I think it's, he benefited from the, the fact that he didn't, we were discussing before, the fact that he was convinced that he wasn't a replicant in the film is good as an actor because you want your actor to, to buy into the reality that the character buys into. Yeah, but he really believed he wasn't a replicant. <laughs> he still doesn't believe he's a replicant. So uh, we're also talking about, so this is the, what do we call this, the final cut or the, what, what's, the what's this one referred to as? Uh, yeah, there's so many versions I've lost count. Um, but this is the last one. Well, and the first one that we saw in theaters had the narration and had uh, the ending was changed, uh, much like with, if you remember, same thing happened to Terry Gilliam with Brazil. They, I guess they decided an upbeat ending would be more commercial for both of them. <laughs> Uh, but to me, it would have, I don't know how I enjoyed it as much as I, as I did, because now that with this version, it, it, it's really like a Swiss watch, uh, the way it all fits together and pays off. And, and I was amazed at how well it, it, it held up. It felt like it could have just been shot. So that's really a testament. <laughs> Let's start with the eyes. It just is intriguing to me as a uh, just studying another filmmaker. Clearly, there's so much about the eyes. There's the the subtlety of the kick, and you know what I'm talking about. There's a reflection in the eyes. Now, this is pre-digital, so the only other time I saw eyes kick like that was in 2001 with that front projection with the with the uh, uh, the uh, big cat that was chasing them. And that was because the retina was kicking up. So technically, I'm intrigued with the idea of the reflectivity of the eyes of the replicants and the owl. And there's even a hint of it with Harrison Ford. I wondered how much of that is intentional. And then also the guy is making the eyes. And the and Terrell wore those big, thick glasses. That that was clearly a choice. How did, how did that all come together? Because it was different from what was in the source material with Philip K. Dick, where where uh, Decker is not a replicant. So 
Could you walk me through the creative process of how you as a filmmaker came to that? Was it a lot of little decisions? Was it something you set out to do from the beginning? Uh, it's like any film, you know, you start in one corner and if you don't watch it, you end up in the other corner, you don't know how you got there. But this was such a complex story in the Philip K. Dick story, Do Androids Dream? is inordinately complex with about 19 major stories in the first 20 pages. So, you know, um, with Hampton Fancher, who was the writer who had distilled the, the book, the very complex book, into a film for himself. And so he'd written a very nice screenplay, but very internalized and very, um, a very personalized version of how the whole thing took place in an apartment. It was a love story. And it was about the hunter and the the quarry had fallen in love. And um, I read it and I was very taken with Hampton's writing, had this particular slant of his, how he worked and thought. And so we got together and the upshot was, I said, love the thing, I'll, love to, I'll do it. But when Deckard steps outside the door, I've got to see a world that supports that you can actually have replication and replicants. And it just grew exponentially. So the eyes, uh, I figured the replicants, we didn't want the word robot or humanoids or anything. We, we got the word from uh, uh, replication in from Carmel. David Webb people's daughter was working in genetics and one morning she said, you know, I'm working in this replication. We've got replicants. We all went, Doom. that's how it began. So each replicant had to be distilled into something about them that you saw uh, was recognizable. And had to be in the eyes. And so this is very pre-pre-digital work, which just shows the miraculous job that Doug Trumbull does with smoke and mirrors. And what I said, I need to get something in the eyes. I don't want glowing eyes. I want something will we'll come and go, but will get your attention. So he said, let me think about that. And I think it was Doug worked out with that we, we take a glass, which is a half-mirrored piece of glass. It's mounted in front of the camera. So if I've got a camera I'm, I'm, and I'm turning it with, with a subject here, your retina is the most sensitive thing on your body. I can, an owl's retina is massively powerful because it can see in the dark, but in a dark room I can take a very fine, small light and shine it in, in, straight in your eyes and I can photograph your retina, which magnifies the light and bounces it back. Like that stuff called 3M, on the, you know the stuff you used to paint on 3M? Your, your retina is way better than 3M. So uh, the mirror, which is got a half mirrored one side and clear the other side, so the camera's shooting straight through it. You've got a small, in those days we used to call them inky dinks or a pup, and you just dial up the pup so it starts to reflect into us. I said, okay, I can see the back of the eye. And so that's how it happened. So we're photographing straightly through the lens into the eye, bounce back, and that's how you got it. That's re remarkable. And, 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 and when Harrison Ford catches a little bit of that as well, was that something that was a happy He's accident? He's a bloody replicant. <laughs> Very good. I didn't tell him that. Uh, let's talk about uh, your working with, you You know, because it is a, although it's a singular vision, it does require a team of people. And, uh, and part of, I think, what's fascinating about this film is, is, the, is the visual language that was developed in some ways very classic with the photography. I mean, some of that feels like it could be out of Citizen Kane with the shafts of light and that composition and the classicism of um, the German expressionism of film noir. You captured all of that. 
But then there's also this really forward-looking uh, production design where the, the choices that you made, and from what I understand, some of them were even from set pieces that you had inherited from, from Francis Coppola. Uh, somehow you put all of this together, built things, worked within the parameters that were required for, for physical effects with Douglas Trumbull and, and, the, and the effects team, but yet you came up with this incredibly cohesive vision of the future that still remains cogent and, and still is being referenced by in, in anime and in, in film by from several generations, because it's not just people like me who grew up with the film, but it's people of my children's generation that are still echoing that out. And I think you could draw a direct line through the matrix to what's going on today. Could you talk about that process and, and how you came to this visual well, language? Every, every film needs a team, and sometimes you get great teams. And, and I had a massive amount of experience before I made my first film. I didn't make my first film until I was 40. Didn't make a film until I was 40. My experience all came off a huge, giant amount of commercials. In those days, I'd shoot 100 commercials a year personally. And they, they weren't just little tabletop things. They were sometimes quite big. So I learned everything there. I learned about operate. I used to operate in all the commercials. So my first film on the Duelist, I operated the whole thing. And then Alien was one camera. I operated all of Alien. I wasn't allowed to do that coming to Hollywood because I'm into a different world. I'd never shot a film in Hollywood before. And of course, the unions, rightly or wrongly, step in the way of not allowing certain things to happen. You can argue about that one later, okay? Uh, <laughs> I'm not gonna go further than that, okay. But, um, uh, but, um, but through my experience of commercials, I know who's a great costume designer, who's a great cameraman, who's a great operator. I mean, like the back of my hand. And so I, I um, I've been very used to supremely good uh, film units. And so I hunted down the best cameraman for me at that particular point, which was Jordan Cronworth, who wasn't very well at the time, which we know that. And um, I just figured he had to be the guy, because with him, he would bring this incredible team of guys. And that I was right in that respect. Charles Snow did the, the wardrobes, and the wardrobe were fantastic in this costume. Um, with, with him, his sister was Michael Kaplan, who I think does Star Wars and things like that. Um, uh, you know, Larry Paul, you know, Larry, um, I'm not, is Larry around? I don't know if he's here, but Larry uh, had this unfortunate task, because I'm fundamentally a designer. I was trained as a designer, and I was a designer before I became even a director. And so poor Larry sandwiched between me and Sid Mead, and I've tracked with it through his books. And Sid comes in, who's, is, is Sid still around? I believe so. Yeah. I, he's given talks recently. Yeah. Um, could you talk a little bit about Sid Mead? Because he's a he's an interesting oh, he's uh, part a of the puzzle here. Because he's a futurist. really a futurist and and drew mostly vehicles. But, yeah. But then it, it became so much more. Well, he would actually be asked to go and visit uh, Scandinavia to take a look at the next two or three or four years targets for the next Saab. So he'd sit there designing Saab for like a few months up in Scandinavia, being very well paid. Uh, but he'd future think, and I'd uh, sit down and say, it's all future think. Well, he's talking about what's going to happen to parking meters, what's going to happen to cities, intercity, all that stuff was fascinating. And what Sid can do, which I always thought, because I'm an art school product, real art school, Sid can sit there and literally with gouache draw drawings that come up like photographs. 
And so I watched Sid do that. So then I'd draw and he'd draw. And Larry was in the middle, poor boss that happened to build it. Um, <laughs> so Larry's going, okay. So we then, we wrecked uh, Hong Kong and uh, somewhere in France. Couldn't afford it. So I thought it's got to be back lot. So I think it was the, it, the studio changed hands. The back lot I was on then, was that Warner's backlot or was it Columbia? I can't remember. Which, uh, uh, was it, it the MGM? First one in the valley down the slope, first right. That's, uh, I think that's Warner. That would be Warner Brothers. Yeah, you're Warner. So, uh, uh, so I walked around this, the lot and we were standing there f- taking photographs and with, with um, Sid. And you take every side, click, 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 click. It's laid out in the art department and Sid literally goes over and paints over what exists to utilize the background. That's how it evolved. It's really quite wonderful, and, and, and you inherited some of the uh, of the neon from uh, from what was it? One from the heart? No, it stole everything I could get. Yeah. No. So it's it's efficiency, but yet um, yeah. using everything that you could to get the most uh, production value on the screen yeah. without. But it doesn't look like. I mean, whether that's the same technique that's used in all the Corman movies, but. It's not quite so surprising to hear that in, in those films. But here, it feels like everything was custom-made for the vision. Uh, and that's a real testament to you and, and, your, and your team. Uh, could you talk about the, the, what the business was like and how it was different for a director? Because there's so much... It's so surprising to me that there was... After such success from Alien and, uh, and, and the anticipation for this film to have so much, so many different versions of it, and the idea that they would add narration, do things like that in post-production, and also for people who are filmmakers, or people who aren't and curious about it, how vulnerable the post-production process is for fulfilling a creative vision and how important creative rights are. You really want me to answer that? Because if I do, I get arrested. Um, uh, it um, It was a tough experience. And because at that point, at 44, I'm quite successful from uh, uh, my business and commercial advertising, which I kept going. In fact, we're now 52 years old, the company, and with 40 directors and all that. That's what we do. And so I'd, and I was like bringing directors on, young people on is really a great thing to do. And so by the time I got to Hollywood, I'd done the Duelists, which had got a prize at Cannes. And, you know, if Harvey... I hate to say that, but if Harvey Weinstein, who understood the process of selling small, low-budget low movies, uh, to be fair to Paramount, they didn't know how to handle that. So they paid 800000 for it, made it, looked at it, and obviously it was kind of stultified, not on where to begin. And so I was with my producer, David Putnam, at that point, and we were studying my premiere was on... Uh, Sunset, uh, was it Wiltshire Boulevard? Mm-hmm. The, you know the arts theater down the end of Wiltshire Boulevard? That was my premiere. Made seven prints in the United States. I said to Dave, is this normal? He said, I don't think so, not really. So, so they didn't understand it, but someone saw the film at Cannes, and there was a guy called Sandy Liebeson, I think. Anybody know Sandy Liebeson? He had seen them and called up Laddie, which Laddie did this one as well, by the way, of course, and said, there's this bloke who's just done this period film, you should look at him maybe as a lineup to do Alien. And so that's how... And, Somebody thought Duelist was somehow applicable for Alien. God knows how. <laughs> but I ended up reading the script, and I was off and running. So from that, um, I'd never made a film in Hollywood, never b- shot in a film, American Hollywood film studio, and came out and, uh, on, and uh, with that success. But uh, 
to talk between the lines and tiptoe through the tulips, the partners are pretty tough. And, and But here we are. I mean, what's nice about uh, the moment we live in, because there's an opportunity to see it in so many, you know, so much of it was us seeing it at home. There were a few re-releases. But that allows you to, uh, to have the version that you want out there, finally, for people to see. And as I said before, it's, it's really, I think this is the best version of oh. the film that I've ever seen. And technically wonderful with uh, the beautiful color treatment to it, the sound, the mix, it really fully utilized. It's the everything. best I've seen it in 20 years. It's, it's fantastic. Really fantastic. Quite remarkable. Now, you, you've, uh, in, in, in something that's striking to me about your process, especially with science fiction, is you're very inspired by other artists. Like, uh, I know, I used to read Heavy Metal Magazine, and I know that you were... Um, you were influenced for Alien uh, from some of the artists from like Mobius from there and, uh, and Giger uh, for the, the Alien design. And here there seems to have been a lot of reference to what, uh, what artists were doing and a sense of design that you have. But then what's also interesting is a real sense looking forward to what the future might hold. And a lot of the themes here are themes that are being wrestled with uh, all anew, you know, you think of um, Ex Machina, there was, you know, it's the same issue of what is sentience, what is consciousness, what's free will, uh, what's humanity. Uh, could you talk to me about uh, what draws you to those themes and what gives you, uh, where do you draw inspiration for the vision that holds up so well after so much time? Um, uh, that's a big question. Um, I think uh, the uh, Blade Runner presents several questions, which is, uh, which in one big broad stroke could be covered by the word apartheid, and a creation of uh, lack of respect for certain beings that are existent or are created by us. I think that is just around the corner. That's actually going to happen. I can't, I can't think to what extent it could be useful or should happen. I don't even believe in driverless cars, by the way, so I think it's ridiculous. So, but <laughs> the, the, um, uh, that drifts along to uh, Prometheus, where um, in Alien I had this great ash, this robot, in Ash, which, where the brilliant idea was on every long distance, or every vehicle that is that valuable, you're gonna have a company man on board, but the company man is gonna be a goddamn robot who will ask, outlast and outlive everybody and will be fundamentally emotionless and programmed to do one thing, which, right? So um, I thought, let's take the idea of Ash and return the, um, the big idea of, I, I felt Alien had himself, with the face hook of the chest back, all that thing, in a funny kind of way, was kind of done and cooked. Hands up who those things think it's done and cooked. The beast. No, I was going to do that. So, so <laughs> I, I thought I better, and Fox were convinced, got to bring this, this beast back. So I did the whole film fundamentally without the beast. And, it, and to see how it was a, it was a pre, pre-version. So it, you see how it came, comes about finally in the very, I think, last or second last shot. In Prometheus, you see the baby alien, how it was conceived. But oddly enough, the star comes out of it is a robot. It's 
uh, Michael Fassbender. And so I thought we're on the road, because funny enough, it's reawakening the idea. But you need to change and push things in a slightly different direction, don't you agree? I think so. And it's interesting because you take all different sides of that conversation, because in this film, the arguably the, the androids are the most uh, sympathetic characters, the ones that express the most emotion. Yep. And I, I, I really love the intersection between sci-fi and film noir, where film noir inherently has a certain moral ambiguity that the, that the uh, private investigator, that the Philip Marlowe character has to yep. face, that they're a character that uh, doesn't operate completely by the rules of the system, like the police. And facing people, often the villains are charming and have a lot of justification for their motives. And so it plums those depths of the ambiguities of morality and humanity here. And so to hear that you're uh, suspicious of technology and that in, and Ash in, in Alien clearly is a hidden villain, and here the villains seem to be the people who are mistreating sure. the, the sentient uh, replicants. Yeah, well, that kind of circles where we are today, isn't it? Isn't virtually... Uh, am I going to get into trouble here? Okay, here we go. Here we go. Um, <laughs> the way we're going politically, not just here, but everywhere in the world, many places are run by... It's questionable people, correct? You pushing me? You pushing? No, no. I was uh, to me. To me, uh, there was a. I mean, go on. Sorry. Uh, no, go on. You can finish your thought. So I always like to circle that principle and that idea that um, the corruption will always out and corruption will always be there, and frequently crime does pay and corruption is at the top. Often, I'm not saying here. I, I want to work on Monday. Please don't fire me. <laughs> uh, but it's everywhere, and that's a reality, isn't it? But I like to look at the bright side of things because the people say, "Oh God, there's that Celtic dark spirit from Newcastle." I'm not really. I've actually done comedies. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I enjoy, you know, so part of it is, yeah, you're talking about the human equation of, of human nature, but then there's also the idea, and, and that's, been, um, that's been fodder for, for drama for, since the beginning of drama. But there's an interesting thing that's happening in this moment that you're kind of uh, shepherding in and we're still wrestling with now, which is our relationship with technology. And this is only a few years after, this film came out only a few years after Star Wars, which if you, talk, if you listen to Joseph Campbell, treats it as the first time that the hero is facing um, a shadow that is representing technology and the idea of the villain being half, half man, half machine in the form of Darth Vader. And so here you're getting a, an even more sophisticated, mature take on it. And it's interesting because now the, the sci-fi fans have been uh, it, thinking about this dilemma for a while. But now it's going very mainstream because technology is a part of everybody's life, not just early adopters. And, um, and so the themes of this actually speak to that moment. Could you speak at all? Because I know I've seen you at other 
tech yeah. type events, you clearly think a lot about technology. What's your view, uh, you could speak about it in cinema, but you could also speak about it more broadly, about the human relationship with technology and how you see that playing out? Well, you've got to take your hat to Stanley Kubrick, uh, who thought up this great idea called HAL. So HAL is the first time I've really dawned on me that there's, I hadn't even grasped in those years, uh, it's almost 40 years old, right? that what the word a computer meant, because I'm not computer savvy, even now I'm not computer savvy. And, uh, but how was this wonderful idea, which actually was the forerunner to Ash, you better have on board the person who's looking after the company's assets, right? And it starts there. And I don't care what layer of life it is, that's exactly the way it is, isn't it? Go on, say yes. Sure, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Um, what was the other half of the question? That's good. I think I, I think I, I think okay. that I think that covers it. Is there anything, by the way, in in watching it now? Is there anything that you'd like to say, or a question you'd like me to ask, or something you'd like to speak to? I'll, can I do the Stanley Kubrick thing? Sure. Because Stanley was one of the reasons I got the. I mean, actually, Orson Welles is the real reason I got in the business. And I thought, who is that? And then Stanley suddenly popped up and did the first science fiction. I thought, aha, there's the threshold. Of and before that, there were good science fictions, but not for me. But 2001 was shockingly good. So I'm doing um, Blade Runner, and I've been told from a very bad series of previews that you've got to have a happy ending. I said, well, this is a film noir. When I said it's film noir, somebody said, what's that? I know I'm in trouble. So, I called up Stanley, who had already talked to from Alien, because he called me once, said, this is Stanley Kubrick. And I said, who? You know, fuck off. No, it's Stanley Kubrick. So, I said, Stanley here. I said, oh, hi, Stanley. <laughs> that was it. And he said, I've got to ask you, I've been, I managed to get a print of Alien. I've been running this bloody thing on the steam bag. I can't work out how you got that thing out of his chest. <laughs> he said, I can't find the cut. So I told him, uh, I literally run it, said, go to frame, see it? Oh, I see it. So n now I knew it. Well, well, tell them how you did it. Okay. Well, alien, right? Well, the well, chestburster. This, this is another story. I, you, I, do okay. you want to hear how no. the alien thing? Okay. Yeah. So um, we cut a hole in the table. <laughs> and poor John had to, had to lie on the table, bend in an S-bend, because think about it, he's got to kneel, lie back, because he's going to flop on the table and start doing his... Uh, 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 thing, right? John said, what do you want me to do? I said, uh, uh, uh. he said, I oh, got it. So, uh, so we, uh, I was looking at him and we, we laid him back and this was about 11 o'clock in the morning and I was lying on the table with a bottle of very cold white wine and I was giving him sips of wine to keep him happy because he had to lie there while we screwed him down. So now he's screwed in this position the T-shirt here that will pop. And alongside him is a guy called Roger Dickin, who's actually made the thing on a really crude thing on a pistol grip, and you do that, and it goes It's pretty pathetic. And it's the wonder, wonder of blood and editing, you know, it's like, <laughs> and uh, we did it that way. And the first time the actors are acting a strong way, oh, whatever's gonna happen, <laughs> and I've got, so the first time I've ever used five cameras, I had to do it in one shot, because I knew when I blew the blood, that set was going to take a week to clean up. That white set. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so five cameras are positioned. I'm on one, and there's others around. 
and John goes, uh, 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 and he goes, bam, and a lot of blood. But we said, turn the taps off. It wasn't going to work. The thing couldn't get through the shirt. So I had to take the actors out, took them out, cleaned up around the set, and I had to go through the, his T-shirt with a razor pin slitting the tape until you can't see it slit, but when it hits, it'll burst. And we did it in one shot. That's great. And, and, a, and a young filmmaker who, who directed a film called Iron Man stole that trick. And I use it when, um, when he, Gwyneth Paltrow is reaching into his chest, the same gag I had Stan Winston build, that same rig for me, but, where he's down. And it's yeah. very convincing, very old school, but, yeah. it, but it, it works. But here's the generosity of Stanley. Because uh, I've been told I've got to have a happy ending. So I think, how am I going to do that? Uh, you've got to end the elevator. Nope, they've got to go away, get out of town, go somewhere nice. I said, well, if you go somewhere nice, why not if you live in this town? So, but now I was in a cowering position, you know, and uh, so I called Stanley and said, listen, you've just finished The Shining. I know you will not get in a helicopter, so you must have sent somebody up there for weeks. Can I borrow some of the footage? He said, you're absolutely right. Yeah. The following morning, I had 17 hours of helicopter footage. So I cut that ending with he and her going off happily ever after into this beautiful, wonderful hill, you know, mountainscape. So you wonder, why the hell would you live there if you got this? But it didn't matter. <laughs> because all Van Gelis's music, which is just stunning still, carried it, and that's what we did. I used his footage. And, and so just for those of you who aren't as familiar, the, the film, when it was first released, had the ending that... Um, that's being described here, which is them driving through the mountains. There was narration. It was very upbeat. And the unicorn dream was gone, as was the, uh, the piece where they found, he found the unicorn. And it just shows you, by the way, how important creative rights are, that a few little changes that only seem like there are a couple bullet points on a set of notes could completely change the way a film is received and the whole meaning behind it. Um, so uh, I'm glad we saw... We saw this version here today. Let's, uh, let's close off by talking a little about Los Angeles, because we are in Los Angeles, and let's talk about the, lo the beautiful locations that you used and the way that you were able to make the future echo the, the, the look of the 40s of the film noir uh, with not just the costume design, but the use of, uh, let's see, was it Union Station? It was the Bradbury Building. And also, what's the name of the uh, Frank Lloyd Wright? Uh, it's... Um... Innis. Ennis House. Is, is it Ennis? Ennis House, yes. Yes, yeah. I used that also again in um, Black Rain. Mm -hmm, that's right. I used it, yeah. So how, did, how were you drawn to, because this is something that is near and dear to all of us Angelinos well, here. Well, yeah. I mean, I've been, I'm a Los Angelin really now. I've been here almost on and off, like in and out 40 years. Um, but Los Angeles was always um, spectacularly so much different, so many changes. It's a beautiful town because you've got the hillside back running through it as a backbone. So that makes it kind of spectacular. Uh, even in its overbuilt areas. I was up there the other night near the dam going to see some people. And it's, it's very jammed with houses all built on the hillside. But it's all such wonderful climate that the Brits, I'm sure there's a lot of Brits in here, always complaining about the weather. And, <laughs> and always complaining about the sand is either too hot or not. So I love it, and uh, I feel that I'm really part of this place. But you made it rain like back home all the time. Yeah, right? but they said, well, you know, when you, I'm, I'm 43 when I'm doing that, so and I keep getting asked, why is it dark? 
and why is it raining? Eventually you say it, because that's the way I want it. <laughs> I, think, I think that's a great way to end. Uh, let's all thank Sir Ridley Scott for being so generous with his time here. Thank you, guys. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. If you'd like to hear more, you can find past episodes of The Director's Cut wherever you listen to podcasts. Stay tuned in the coming weeks for more great Q&As with directors Ron Howard and Martin Scorsese. And be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.